Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the fourth trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth trimester care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi listeners, it's Esther. Happy to be back with you today. Sarah won't be with us, but I have a very, very special guest, Nadal Abdul Mumin, and she is going to be telling us about her pathway to becoming a doula. Before we get started with that, I just want to remind you listeners that you can follow up with us on our uh, website, fourthtrimesterpodcast.com, where you'll find our whole lineup of past podcasts. And we're on Facebook and we have a Patreon page. So if you can, we would really super duper appreciate your throwing us some change now and then. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Nidal. She is Cornerstone Certified Birth and Postpartum Doula and Childbirth Educator. And she's co-author of the Muslim Edition for the Cornerstone Method of Childbirth Education Student Workbook, which I just think is so fantastic. She holds a bachelor's degree from Damascus, Syria in Arabic and Islamic studies and simultaneous is a Quran teacher at Zaytuna College. She lives in Berkeley with her husband and four daughters who are ages 6, 9, 13, and 15. I am so thrilled to have you here, Nadal. Would you be willing to give us your story of coming to this place that you are now as a birth and postpartum dual and childbirth educator? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. I was really delighted to come on and I think it learning that the fourth trimester podcasts were a resource for me to learn so much and to connect with the community locally has been really, um, really educational and really like I, I always feel very inspired when I listen to them. So I'm definitely going to refer my clients to listen. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. My parents are converts to Islam. So I grew up as a Muslim. I was born at home. My dad is African-American. My mom is European-American. And I was born at home at a time when it was actually illegal to have home births in, in New York. And um, so it was kind of like a... It was a a piecemeal job that I'm so grateful my mom believed in and was willing to do. Nidal, does that mean that she wasn't able to find a midwife to support her? Or does it just mean that they had to be kind of under the radar? I'm just curious because when I gave birth in 77, it wasn't legal either, strictly speaking, in California to have a midwife assisted home birth. Yeah, I, I don't know if she had resources, like actual access to a midwife, but she didn't have a midwife. So (laughs) it was someone who read a lot of books and was really passionate about it and was like, let's do this. Mm -hmm. She was like, cool. Yeah. Go mom. 
Exactly. So proud and impressed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't privileged to have the beautiful kind of home birth care that we now have that access to. Like she didn't have any prenatals and, you know, it was like they were just figuring it out. One thing that really was interesting to me even about my mom's story of having her, she had my sister at home too. She's older than me. And when she was breastfeeding my sister, she had a cracked nipple and she called the Leche League to help her out. And they were probably in their infancy. And they told her, well, we don't have a solution for this. You're going to have to just stop nursing, which is crazy. Yes, it is crazy. I I had two hamburgers on my chest and the midwife was just like, just power through, you know, like, just keep going. So she was determined and she was like, she got a nipple shield and was putting Vaseline and lanolin and eventually she healed and was able to nurse. You know, she nursed all through it, but it yeah. worked. And so she called them up and she was like, hey, this is a solution. <laughs> so um, good for you. Good for her. Yeah, yeah, that's it, because I can attest to how rough it is and how alone you feel mm. and how stressful that is when you're just trying to keep your baby fed and heal and recover. Yeah. 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 For me, breastfeeding was pretty simple. So <laughs> At one and a half, we moved to California. So I grew up pretty much in the Bay Area. And my mom was actually wanting to be a a midwife at one point. She had like all these books in the house of like, or maybe a few books that was, that were, I think it was like a rural midwife's manual. And she had some, some tools that she had left over from that time in her life when she had that dream. So I would read those books as a child and, and was really fascinated and played doctor with the, I don't know what she had, like a different things. And it was always something that in our family, it was like, it was just a given that that birth was safe and natural and that we just all really believed in home birth because obviously from my mom's experience, but reading those books um, <laughs> can really make you feel even more adamant about that. So I was always intrigued in, in that. And then when I was 16, I was thinking to be a home economics teacher because I'm also really into crafting, but my plans changed and it came, opportunity came for me to go to Damascus, Syria to study Arabic. And so that turned into eight years in Syria to learn Arabic. And I finished my bachelor's degree there and did extra studies in Quran, which I now teach. When I was in Syria, I got the opportunity to work with the midwives that were there helping other American women to have home births with the home birth midwives that were there. So that was exciting. I kind of was like a go-between. Actually, it was like retrieve the midwife lady. (laughs) (laughs) Because there, it's like, there's not prenatal care if you are having a home birth. So you base, they're just like, come get us when she's in labor. So because I had been there for so many years, it was easy for me to like get a taxi, run up the hill, get the lady, you know, <laughs> bring her to the mother. And um, yeah, it was really funny. Actually, one mother, we had these really simple walkie talkies and they like, barely worked but that was the only way because we didn't have like home phones and so we had this crackly walkie-talkie and then one night it was like my wife's water broke and that's like all I heard (laughs) and I was like okay so like the thing like died after that and I just like jumped up and like 
band down the hill. And... Were you pretty sure you knew the voice? I mean, I mean, it yeah. was her husband, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing was funny because it would pick up other <laughs> voices as well. <laughs> sometimes. It did its job, though, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it went off without a hitch, despite the possibilities. <laughs> exactly. Well, and and so I'm curious, would you then be allowed to stay for the labor and birth or... So you're kind of an apprentice. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I helped, I stayed and helped in whatever capacity. Yeah. And the midwife, she just came by herself with her bag and mm-hmm. it was a really simple process. And then she would leave like really soon after. And it was like, bam, bam, we're done. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So I, I kind of got to see the other side of it of like translating from the Arabic midwife to the English speaking mom <laughs> and bridging that gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so now, um, after I finished my studies in Damascus, I came back and we were living on the East coast and I started having my own babies. So I had all my babies in on the East coast with home birth midwives there. And with my third child, I was actually living in Dubai and home birth is not allowed there. They don't have any options. It's illegal. So we were very concerned about that. I remember thinking, well, if I have to have a baby here, I'm just going to be in the parking lot until like I'm ready to push and then <laughs> like come in. <laughs> um, so I didn't have to do that. Things were kind of fluctuating for us and we decided to just go back to the United States. And, and so then we got our home birth. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it would have actually worked either because I, my first labor was like 16 hours, an hour and a half of pushing. So it's pretty normal and, and predictable. But the, all of the subsequent labors that I had were like six hours of like really mild contractions and then like 15 minutes of like throw down, <laughs> drag out, like babies coming. And yeah. that was it. Yeah. So I think I would have been in that car having that. Baby. Yes. Yep. yep. Or just not even get out the door. Exactly. By the time you realize, oh yeah, this is actually be really on my happening. way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of those stories with not first babies so much, but second, third, and fourth babies. Yeah. Lots of those stories of like not quite making it to the front door. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. My interest in being a birth worker obviously was before I had my own children, but having, like having my first child, it definitely inspired me more so to be a postpartum doula than anything else because I just experienced it firsthand. And I think everyone who experiences it just like, whoa, it's, it's shocking. Like, you know, how much you really need that help and that not everyone around you knows necessarily how to give you that help even though they're extremely well-meaning you know when I had my first baby I didn't know much about nutrition I think they fed me like some miso soup after I had the baby it's like (laughs) no protein and and I had you know a husband around me and my in-laws around me and everyone was caring for me but I don't think there was like this really understanding of like, this woman needs protein. This woman needs like to eat regularly. And so they were sort of waiting for me to be like, Oh, I'm hungry and, and please feed me. And I think for me as in my personality, it was really a challenge to say like, I need you to get me something right now. So at three days postpartum or four days, I was like up and about and I was wanting like, 
just grabbing like snacks, like eating a banana or eating, you know, and I was like, okay, like maybe I should eat, but you know, then I'm like breastfeeding and then I'd go to the bathroom and then lay back down. And so that this whole cycle of, um, taking care of the baby and, uh, my mother-in-law, um, bless her heart. She kept saying, there's, there's stuff to make sandwiches. If you need one, there's stuff. And I didn't know enough about what I needed or what I was going through and the kind of support I needed to just say, like, I would love a sandwich. Would you make it for me? And so by the end of that day, I was like ready to faint. And it was so confusing to me because I was like, I was eating. I was, you know, <laughs> you thought we were. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and then I was just a mess. My husband came home and I'm like crying and he's like, what happened? You know, it's not like you were alone all day. But so that whole experience really just was like, oh my gosh, I just don't want anyone to go through that. Yeah. So I had attempted to take a postpartum doula class and then I got pregnant with my second and I was nauseous and I was like, I don't think I need to take a postpartum doula class right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I canceled that. But so then, you what know. What year was that? What year was that? Uh, 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was in New Haven, uh, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now that my kids are bigger <laughs> from like, uh, I guess, 2016, for a whole year I was taking classes and learning how to be a doula and and postpartum doula and started some midwifery studies. And it's been just really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm really, really excited to serve my community and just everyone, especially being a Muslim woman. I think it means a lot to have the extra support in the hospital and extra support postpartum just because there's a lot going on for Muslim women in America right now. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, and mm. it's hard to know when you walk into any space where there are people who consider themselves authorities how you'll be treated, right? Even Berkeley can fall off the path a little bit, I think, sometimes. Talk more about that, Nidal. I think it's very, we know we live in very interesting times, mm. uh, very challenging for all people of color. It's always been challenging for some people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, living in the U.S. Um, so yeah, what's your experience with all that? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, I was really sheltered from feeling different because I was in Berkeley, <laughs> and like any time we would like step our foot outside of Berkeley, it was like, oh my gosh, people are looking at us. Oh my gosh. You know, and I mean, I think it's all centered around me wearing the hijab, like wearing a scarf on my head and or being with my mom who was wearing a scarf on my head when I was still younger and not wearing it and then feeling like, oh, wow, we're like, this is something, you know? Yeah. We put um, this thing on and everyone yeah, I decides mean, to notice us. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think it's necessarily the stairs that are a problem. And as I grow older, I feel like um, more and more, I mean, I think as a kid, you feel like nervous about people looking at you, but more as an adult, I'm like, please ask a question, please like want to know, please want to explore, like, what is this? I, I think the thing that I respond to in what you just said, which is, Hey, ask me a question. I'm here. Yeah. You know, I can talk with you. I can have this conversation. And we live in a time where it's challenging for 
everybody to know what the boundaries are, right? Yeah. When it's just neighborly and sociable and okay. And when it's potentially really crossing boundaries or serving a purpose that isn't neighborly, community oriented, etc. So it's, it's a confusing thing, a confusing time. I'm thrilled to hear that you're open to all of that, which is lovely for me. Mm. Um, certainly as the listeners know, I, I live in a mixed family, whatever, you know, I just, these words are just ridiculous sometimes, but, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different cultural orientations in my family. I'll say it that way. Mm -hmm. And that's thrilling to me. You know, I grew up in a rural, very white community and couldn't wait to find out what the fair world was like. Mm. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Los Molinos, which is in Tehama County, which Mm. is a very rural, large county, but not many people in it. And north of Butte County, which is where Chico is, which was kind of always the big town, you know. Um, So that was the the largest, most sort of interesting place to go to because there was a college campus there. Mm. So we could broaden our worldview. Uh, nature, on the other hand, was what was available, which was so wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, having just a really direct experience of nature every day, all the time. I wouldn't trade that for an urban childhood mm-hmm. but I'm really excited that my kids had urban teenagehoods and that I as an adult have been able to transition to an urban existence because I just feel like community wise it's so much more interesting mm-hmm. um especially doing this work yeah you know it gives me the opportunity to do this work as well I think even in California that we think we think of as a somewhat progressive state, the rural areas of California are very, very not progressive. And women suffer for that as we do and have traditionally because we have done away with traditional forms of support. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. generations just, it was taken from them and then lost track of, you know, over the generations. So as you're, learning as a postpartum doula as well, we're having to reinvent all of this mm, and yeah. search other cultures for what they have to offer, what they have not lost perhaps mm-hmm. um, by way of traditional ways of caring for new mothers and their families. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's fascinating. I know prior to the show, we were having a chat and you were saying that so far your, your experience working with Arabic speaking mothers has been rather limited. Mm -hmm. Do you have any theories about all that? Yeah. So I think it, it is pretty rare for uh, an Arab, Arab woman to have a doula and even to maybe even know that what's the importance of that. And I mean, really, it's an investment, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I find that I think that there just isn't a lot of knowledge in our community yet about what the role of that is. I think that um, especially because Arab women come from like a very rich tradition of supporting their family, supporting them. So if they can have a family member or a friend for them, that's that's the they've done what they need to do to have support, you know, but I think just getting the the word out there that like, even when you have family, having someone who's 
used to being in the hospital, knows the options that are there, can also bridge maybe the language barrier that might be happening. And very likely is happening, right? Yeah, yeah. Very likely. It's interesting when you think of like translations, are they ever accurate? I don't think they are. And then I think among, and and I hear also too, I mean, amongst, between the many dialects of the Arabic language, sometimes the translator might not be fluent in the dialect of the person they're translating from. And that causes an an added layer of uh, sort of a hurdle to get over. (laughs) Without a lot of time to get over it if you're in labor, right? (laughs) Yeah, You can't just sit there for a couple of days to work out the nuances. Exactly. Yeah. Or there might be, that's the translator that's available. So I think we probably run into a similar issue to whatever extent with speakers of Chinese dialects, right? There, Mm -hmm. there are major language groups. And then within those, there are many dialects. And so Mm -hmm. it's an interesting phenomenon. Because Arab women and women who particularly cover, they feel like People are looking at them like potential terrorists and threats that they're very much less likely to speak up for their rights and to feel empowered to say, well, I don't want this intervention or I need to think about it or whatever they would want really have the right to do, you know, Mm -hmm. I think also they're coming from a culture where maybe they didn't have access to advanced medical treatment as we do in the United States. So they're looking at like, this is progress. This is like, I I can't complain about this because this is like as best as it will get, right? Mm-hmm. And so if something doesn't feel right, they might not think about it as like, oh, I could have, I could have spoken up or I could have asked for a different provider or something. Um, or just indicated no thanks. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I really feel like that empowerment piece is really crucial, especially for Muslim women who are already feeling kind of like, I don't know how you even think about me. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if my culture is going to be respected here. And if I speak up about something, are you going to look down on me for that and give me care that isn't, isn't as good, you know, like all these things run through your head. I mean, that's, it would be even probably worse for someone whose papers weren't, you know, in order or something. And they were worried about not being in the country anymore. They would definitely be like, not want to speak up at all, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's a really vulnerable position. I think Muslim women are in already. And then to be in the hospital and you're in a place of, of this really strong authority and you need them, it's like exacerbates that problem. And, you know, to be fair, I'm sure much of the time uh, maternity nurses would love to know, Mm. would love to have any way to know how to support any woman who walks into their maternity ward and Mm -hmm. give her as good a care as they know how. Mm -hmm. And but for a language barrier would happily do that, but might not know Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when she says to a woman who doesn't speak English, take off your clothes mm. and put on this belly band so that I can monitor your baby. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah. You know, that's maybe to start just highly inappropriate. Yeah. Like yeah. this woman is not going to be taking off her clothes, mm. um, for instance, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. But it no, absolutely. makes sense, right? But when you come from a culture that 
you don't take your clothes off in front of people, it's going to really feel threatening when somebody indicates that that's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And you don't even know the reason. You can't even comprehend the reason necessarily yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like I kind of have to advocate for myself and my children every time we go to the doctor because those reasons, like, they're like, okay, take your clothes off and put on this piece of paper. And I just look at the paper and I'm like, no. (laughs) I mean, I don't, you know, I try to be polite, but for me, I'm like, every time I say no, they figure out a way to give you the exam really easily without it. So I'm like, why was that necessary? Yeah. Right. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just walking into the doctor's office, I feel like in general, I've gotten a lot of practice Mm-hmm. Sort of having to advocate for us as, I mean, even not for religious reasons, for like immunization preferences. And mm-hmm. my 13 year old, she didn't want to talk to the doctor alone. She felt she wanted her mom there. So yeah. we had to advocate for her. And I feel like growing up in America as a Muslim and being an American as well um, gives me sort of a special skill set to see it from both angles and sort of know like, no, it's okay to speak up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine over all those many years, you've been able to engage a kind of creativity, right? For problem solving, as it were, Mm -hmm. in these various areas that would just so well serve the Muslim community in general, if they were only to know about it. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I've been doing this. I've got these skills and I can help you out with this. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel every time no. it happens. I wonder, have you, you, you may have done this already, but you should imagine if you went around to the various midwives and OBGYNs in your community and just said, have these skills, mm-hmm. you know, if you have clients, mm-hmm. yeah, it might really help both parties to have somebody who has a lot of experience, mm-hmm. personal and professional experience doing just this, like yeah. navigating how to get through this with less stress and, and more appropriate behavior. And it, it does make sense. I guess I've been thinking about that a lot more, just um, being a Muslim and like people maybe not coming in contact with a lot of Muslim women and then to think of me as like someone who would be coming to their birth. It takes really getting to know me and saying like, Oh yeah, she's just a normal person. You know? Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, if you don't know people like that, you might be like, Huh, I don't know. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it's like my experience of being an American. I almost didn't realize how American I was until I went to Syria. <laughs> yeah. I bet. (laughs) Actually, people think I'm Arab, right? Mm -hmm. You can't really tell what I am. (laughs) So I think I grew up as almost like an Arab American, even though my parents don't speak Arabic at all. (laughs) Right. You know, just because of the way I was treated and the assumptions that were made about me. So then, but living in Syria really showed me like, how much I had American culture in me, like mm-hmm. how much that was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you see like another culture that's like so strong and so like when they look at anything that I do, it was like, oh, how how could you do that? That's just not the way we do things. And yeah. I'm like, well, <laughs> and we're so used to like this multicultural 
pot of you know mixed in everything and mm-hmm. just like we eat all kinds of foods we wear all kinds of clothes we listen to all kinds of music and then mm-hmm. seeing a culture that's so like we do this one way mm-hmm. it was like really amazing. all do it the same yeah 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 like they would ask me what are you cooking for dinner and I was like you don't even want to try to understand <laughs> I think I would just make stuff up. I yeah, mean. <laughs> sure. As I do. <laughs> isn't that everybody's, like, isn't that how we do it? <laughs> yeah. But they would yeah. have, like, either you're making, you know, rice with beans or, you know, rizvazalia, or they have specific dishes that you make. And mm-hmm. that's that's what they make. Okay. And that's what you eat. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> It was beautiful, but it was, I think it was challenging. And mm-hmm. as an American, it really made me realize kind of who I was mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nudal, I would love for you to talk about this wonderful book that you co-authored. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So it's the Muslim edition of the Cornerstone Method of child- Childbirth Education Student Workbook. So the Cornerstone Method is like an eight-week course that is a childbirth education course. And so when I was getting trained in this course, the founders and teachers, um, Julie and Nikki Tilsner, they were teaching me and I was looking at the book that they have and realizing that in order for this to this beautiful knowledge that I really wanted to teach to be accessible and comfortable for the Muslim couples that I would be teaching, I needed a book that had more modesty in the images. So I mentioned that to them and I said, well, maybe we could just like have a version that had different images. And she was like, uh, Julie was like, no, we want you to make a whole book that's exactly what you need. And so I was like, wow, (laughs) that's so great. Yeah. So that was like my whole summer (laughs) of like, it was so juicy because it was like having that opportunity to take a book and like personalize it and say like, how would this really serve me? It was like, it was such a gift that they gave me and our community. What I did was maybe they mentioned a couple of times pork products. So like I took that out Mm -hmm. and uh, added more things like what to bring to the hospital, like maybe things that would help you to be able to pray or, you know, maybe you wanted to bring recordings of Quran to listen to and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole chapter on different prayers that you can make during labor to ease labor that are, you know, that are like, prescribed in uh, the Islamic tradition. And there's a whole chapter on just the customs around birth, because even practicing Muslims, you know, like, it's not like you have, well, we do have a lot of babies, I should say that. <laughs> but you don't have them every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, just as a reminder, like, how do we do that thing again? And, you know, when you're having a baby, like, even if you're not like used to doing a lot of the practices, like you want to do them. So mm-hmm. It's like sort of like a, you know, a description of all the practices that one would do at the birth and people can pick and choose what they feel comfortable doing. But just having that information was like really scrumptious. I could imagine for people who maybe don't have a strong religious identity, but say 
mm-hmm. have, I, I think this is a very common American thing. You know, I was, as a little girl, was being brought up in the Catholic Church a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, only on Sundays, but, and at catechism, but my family sort of disavowed that early on. That, and then there was sort of nothing. But as I grew up, of course, not a surprise, I just became sort of interested in sort of an existential, but also somewhat of a Buddhist orientation Mm -hmm. towards life, which I don't think of strongly as any kind of religion, but I I think it certainly has practices in in the various cultures where Buddhism is really strong and is Mm -hmm. a cultural practice. Mm -hmm. And so I can so imagine having Buddhist sayings and Buddhist principles as a way to affirm myself and my orientation in labor would have been just lovely, whether or not it was helpful. It would have been lovely. (laughs) And I can only imagine it is helpful, Mm -hmm. you know, as well. So to have a special book that's been studied on behalf of my religious orientation so that I can be reminded, Mm -hmm. you know, and remind myself of the things in my religion that are here to support me, Mm -hmm. you know, in challenging moments. How lovely and how lovely of you to get that all together. All by yourself. I mean, that's pretty fantastic. Well, I had some help. With you that. did. Did you? <laughs> good. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was super exciting. And just to have the opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I totally had that when I had kids. Sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Isn't it true that so much of the work that doulas do is done because of what didn't <laughs> exist when we were, when we exactly. were trying to be, you know, in this situation? I just want to say that I, looked through the book and I just thought the photographs were so lovely and perfectly appropriate, certainly illustrating the important things that we would want illustrated in a childbirth preparation book, mm-hmm. you know, but with appropriate dress and yeah. 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 We were really fortunate with the illustrator and the, and the photographer. It was all Muslims and they were just felt like they were sent from heaven. Like they yeah. just did such a good job. And it was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll share with you this, um, one prayer. I remember, um, my neighbor in, uh, in Damascus, she was Algerian and she was praying this prayer in her, in her labor. And, you know, we have the story of, of Jonah when he was swallowed by the whale in mm-hmm. the Quran because mm-hmm. actually, um, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam were all like sister religions and we have a lot of the same stories and the same prophets. And so Jonah is one of our prophets and there's a prayer that he made while he was in the belly of the whale. And due to this prayer, God then had the whale spit him out. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. releasing of. You can imagine that imagery being so strong of like, release this baby from my body, you know, and him being released from this whale and um, (laughs) almost like given a new life, right? Mm -hmm. He thought he was goner. Yeah. Um, And so the (laughs) Yeah, there is that kind of life-death crisis in every birth, isn't there? Mm. Even if it's not likely to be the outcome, even moms will say, I feel as though I'm dying, maybe not really knowing what that feels like, but for those moments of transition, Mm -hmm. there is this sense of something about oneself is having to be left behind in order to move forward. Yeah. Um, So it goes... La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-zalimeen. And it's translated, there is no God but you. Glory be to you. 
indeed I was the one who committed wrong. And it, it's interesting because, I mean, it's really a prayer asking for God to forgive him. And we have a concept in Islam that when women are in labor, they're, all of their sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. And so they're like reborn almost with the baby as like a pure being that has no sins, sort of like reaffirming that God forgive me, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like getting closer to that rebirth stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Entering back into one's innocence takes mm-hmm. a process of releasing yeah. that which is not. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. Yeah, that is really beautiful. Yeah, and there's many more in here, and I put everything I could find <laughs> because I was like, every woman's going to want something different, you know, mm-hmm. and what speaks to me is not going to speak to someone else. And it, it, something that really a lot of women take strength from is the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. And we have a chapter in the Quran all about her, and um, and it, it's really powerful, but about her being in labor and feeling like, she says, I, or I wish that I were dead. And then God says to her, shake the tree. And the tree is a palm tree and the dates fall down and she, and, and she's able to eat the dates. And, and he's like, look beneath you and drink from the stream that is flowing. And I don't know, it really speaks to that same thing that you were saying, just not as they're about feeling like I'm going to die or <laughs> I want to die, <laughs> you know, and just feeling like, oh man, like Mary, um, peace be upon her was feeling the same way and she got through it you she know did. and it was a spiritual gift to be nourished in that moment wasn't mm. it you know it wasn't just somebody's giving you some food and some fluids right yeah it was a gift from god to mm-hmm. have those things in that moment mm-hmm. Absolutely. you know and, and i will say working as a doula it's that's often the thing that moms having gone through labor will say you know, when you did that little thing, mm. just this little simple thing, whether it was just put the straw up to their lips or put something nourishing in their mouth when they were just actually nowhere, you know, just mm. couldn't have done it for themselves. These are the simple, most powerful things mm-hmm. for a woman in labor. Yeah. Yeah. You know? You're like on your, like just the basic needs are like so intense. <laughs> yeah. And just say nice things to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just and don't leave me. me even when I want to die or mm. want to hate even, you know, just mm. like, <laughs> like, do not abandon me in this moment. Absolutely. Um, you know, maybe don't touch me. Maybe don't talk to me, <laughs> but don't you dare leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So true. And so continues to be true in those, as you were pointing to earlier in your own experience, bless her heart. What you needed from your mother-in-law was not, would you like me to make a sandwich? Mm-hmm. It was to bring you the sandwich. Yeah. Don't, yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. don't give you more to think about. Just know that of course she needs nourishment. Of course she needs sustenance mm-hmm. and me human being does, you know, and so these are the things that doulas know and understand and don't need to be told Mm -hmm. and don't ask, right? We don't ask our clients, do you need a sip of water? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just put the straw up to your lips (laughs) while you're in labor and you either suck on that straw or you don't, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Most moms suck on that straw (laughs) every time it comes to them, right? And so continues to be true in those weeks 
mm-hmm. while we're here healing and recovering. Yeah, especially as a first time mom, I think you know I got a lot better at it as I mm-hmm. <laughs> as I yeah, as I had kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, I was like, okay, I want please bring me food. <laughs> yeah, but the first time moms, it's tough. You just I mean, I didn't even just even know, I didn't even know what I needed necessarily right. just because I never had experienced my body in that way. Right. And yeah. yeah. And like, you know, I was young, I could do, you know, like a capable and you just don't think that you don't realize how much like you need to replenish mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. With my fourth, I was like amazing. We had like... <laughs> this beef stew with like beans. It was like the densest stew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what you needed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think the midwife still raves about that stew. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, for those of my clients who will eat it, I am really fond of making a lamb stew for them mm-hmm. and oh, with just loads of vegetables and lamb is so nourishing and, and digestible in a way mm-hmm. that, um, the people don't realize, you know, we don't eat lamb that much in America mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And many people feel that they don't like it. And although I have had those moms say, yeah, I just never liked lamb, but go ahead and make it. And if I don't like it, you know, my partner will eat it. And then they taste it and they're surprised at how mm-hmm. much they're going to love it and want it all the time. Yeah. So yeah. I'll have to get that recipe. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty, I'm kind of a jazz cook, you know, I just throw everything into me. It never turns out the same way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, you know, some of those nice, uh, you know, some cinnamon and cumin and Mm, um, basil and marjoram, Mm. which is, I like to tell people on the podcast, marjoram is in the oregano family, but it's specific for women. It's a specific herb for women. It's calming. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's yin and it's calming. And my acupuncture told me about this many years ago, and it explained why I would always go right to the marjoram plants in the herb gardens and rub it together and rub it on my chest mm-hmm. so that I could smell it <laughs> and have it near my heart. And um, so I cook with marjoram. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I make. Yeah. And cumin is oxytoxic, which is good oh. for the... Yeah, good for the milk, good for the uterus. And cinnamon's just so good for the digestive tract. Yeah. Yeah, you don't go overboard, <laughs> right? Too much cinnamon is not a good thing. But um yeah. So those are my tips right nice. there. Those are my awesome. cooking tips. <laughs> and lots of root vegetables. <laughs> Gotta get rooted mm-hmm. back down. So yeah. All the root vegetables. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, this has just been fantastic. <laughs> I'm so happy you were willing to make the journey take the adventure over to, to my home and talk with this. And one more thing about the book, what we put into it is there's relaxations in there, which is mm-hmm. more of a yoga practice, right? And um, although we have a lot of worship in Islam that is definitely has to do with like slowing down and breathing and all of this, but actual yoga practice is kind of like a foreign concept to us. And mm. so I kind of, um, I took the yoga relaxation template and I added in things that would help people to relate it to the Islamic tradition and to make it more, um, feel more comfortable for Muslims to practice it. So I'm really excited about that. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Way to go. I'm just 
I can't wait to get my hands on the book and look really, really read it. <laughs> so that's lovely. Yeah. And why don't you give our listeners your contact information? So you can visit my website at www.soulfulpassage.com. And um, my information and my phone number is on there. You can give me a call. And that's basically it. <laughs> soulfulpassage.com. And of course, share that with us. It'll be on our uh, Facebook page and um, our website and all of that too. Well, thanks so much again for coming on. I just love you for, for being with us today and uh, enlightening our listeners so much. And um, thanks listeners for joining us as well. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on the podcast. Take care. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Bye for now. Simple and true. I wrote the song. I'll sing a song for you. You got your wheels. You got your gears. You ride around town without any fear. You got your pedals, you got your brakes, you always wear your helmet for safety's sake.